This episode of Food Psych is brought to you by my intuitive eating online course. If you're ready to break free from diet culture and reclaim the life it stole from you, learn more and sign up at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, body liberation, and taking down diet culture. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm an anti-diet registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor, offering online courses and programs to help people all over the world make peace with food. Join me here every week as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food and their bodies. Hey there, welcome to episode 183 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm talking with Catherine Zavodny, a fellow health at every size and anti-diet dietitian. She shares her own experience with chronic illness and the wellness diet, how it ultimately led her to embrace a health at every size approach after a long and winding path, why the popular narrative of personal responsibility in diet and wellness culture is so harmful, what to do when other people are stuck in diet mentality, and so much more. I can't wait to share it with you in just a moment. But first, I'll answer this week's listener question. And before I do that, I just wanted to take a moment to address some letters I got from listeners about the answer to the listener question I did two weeks ago. So in that answer, I said that while the 12-step model is great for addressing issues with drugs and alcohol, it doesn't work for food because food addiction isn't really a thing. And the listener who asked the question pointed that out. So that was part of the question. And I sort of was answering about specifically food addiction and whether the 12-step model works for the concept of food addiction, which, spoiler alert, is not really a thing. That's in episode 181, so you can hear the full answer to that question there. But a number of people have written in sharing that they're in a different kind of 12-step program that doesn't believe in the food addiction model. And that program is called Eating Disorders Anonymous, where the thing that you're working to overcome is the eating disorder behaviors, not a supposed addiction to food. And those people have said that they found this type of 12-step group really helpful for eating disorder recovery. So I haven't personally been involved with Eating Disorders Anonymous, although I did have it on a resource list a million years ago that I used to give out for like free and low-cost resources for eating disorders. So I think that it could be great for that purpose. But like any 12-step program, they just vary. The groups vary from meeting to meeting, so I can't endorse them across the board. But just wanted to share with you that that's one version of a 12-step program for disordered eating that doesn't seem to be predicated on the flawed idea of food addiction. And so that's great that there's an alternative that isn't based on that flawed model. Okay, so now I want to answer this week's listener question, which is from a listener named Georgia who writes, Hi, Christy. I love your podcast, and I wish the messages you put out into the world were more common. I struggled myself with an eating disorder for a few years, and even though I consider myself recovered, I still slip back into the fear of gaining weight. Food isn't really the issue for me anymore. My problem is exercising. I wouldn't say I over-exercise per se, but I do put a lot of pressure on myself to make sure I exercise quote-unquote enough, and I very rarely let myself miss a session. I recently purchased a Fitbit. A lot of people I knew were doing it, but that lasted only a month and I resold it. I knew it wasn't good for me and I just listened to episode 140, which I loved, but I was wondering if you have any other tips on how to stop obsessing over getting enough exercise. I try to focus on benefits of exercise that don't involve weight manipulation, but I know deep down this is still my main motivator. 
So thanks, Georgia, for that great question. And before I answer, just my standard disclaimer that these answers and this podcast in general are for informational and educational purposes only and are not a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice. So yeah, Georgia, I totally feel you because I used to be there myself. I used to overexercise and compulsively exercise for weight control. And the first thing I would say is to challenge yourself to miss more sessions. I think that is a really great first step here because it sounds like you don't think of yourself as a quote unquote overexerciser in the sense of doing so much exercise. Although as I talked about with Jesse Haggerty in episode 140, which is the one you were referencing, people often think they need a lot more structured exercise than they actually do. And a lot of what diet culture tells us about how much we're quote unquote supposed to exercise is actually too much. So that is a possibility that actually you're doing more than your body wants or needs too. But the more immediate issue for you sounds like it is allowing yourself to like miss sessions and not feeling compelled to exercise. And so I would say, yeah, challenge yourself to miss sessions and maybe start with like, I'm going to skip one planned session this week and I'll have to pick when it's going to be, you know, I'll have my sort of rigid exercise schedule in my head. But then on the day of, I'm just going to decide, you know what, this is the one that I'm just going to skip here. And then you can use that time to maybe listen to an episode of Food Psych, for example, or delve more into the body liberation, health at every size, anti-diet world and some other way. Or use that time to read a book or novel, a fun novel or volunteer or do something that honors another aspect of your life and has nothing to do with food or your body. And I think it's important to challenge yourself to miss days because in diet culture, we're so conditioned to try to figure out little ways to add more movement into our lives, right? But when you're in a relationship with movement where you feel so pressured to do quote unquote enough, whatever that means, that it is taking away from your life, you actually need the exact opposite, which is finding little ways to subtract movement and learning to sit with the discomfort that comes up when you do that and challenge whatever negative thoughts you're having that come up when you're actively taking yourself away from a movement practice. And that's the next thing I would recommend is to get underneath what those thoughts are saying to you and talk back to them. So saying, okay, I'm going to sit this one out. I'm not going to this movement practice tonight, whatever that may be. And then being there with yourself and watching the feelings that come up and watching the thoughts that come up and trying to recognize what they're saying to you and then trying to reframe them. And so usually what they're saying to you is some version of this. If I don't exercise, then I'll gain weight. And if I gain weight, then, you know, fill in the blank. Something terrible is going to happen, right? I won't be lovable. I'll never find happiness. I'll never be successful. I'll never get X, Y, Z, right? And so those internalized diet culture thoughts usually go back to something deep like that. We wouldn't care about something that we think is going to make us gain weight unless we attached some negative consequences to gaining weight in our minds, right? And that's what diet culture has taught us to do. So it's not like we, not like we got that out of nowhere. You know, we, we've been steeped in these ideas that weight gain equals bad, equals whatever, fill in the blank, terrible consequence. And so that's where our mind goes. But we need to start to learn to interrupt those thoughts and in, interrupt that sort of unconscious patterning. And obviously, those thoughts aren't true, right? I, you know, that sort of goes without saying. Your weight does not mean anything about who you are as a person. Your weight does not stand in the way of you getting the things you want in life. 
There is, yes, systemic fat phobia in our society that can make it harder for you to move through the world in a larger body. And I'm talking about in a truly higher weight body, right? Not just a body that's at a slightly higher weight than you were at, but still objectively having the privilege of fitting into clothes and fitting into airplane seats and shopping at mainstream stores and all that stuff, right? The consequences of weight stigma are true for everyone. We all have internalized weight stigma in this society, but the consequences are far greater and more evident for people who are genuinely in higher weight bodies. But that being said, there are plenty of people in higher weight bodies rocking out in the world and having the lives of their dreams and loving them themselves, loving their bodies. You've heard from many of them on this podcast, right? People like Jess Baker and Sonia Renee Taylor and Virgie Tovar and Reagan Chastain and, you know, all of these amazing folks that we talk to here who are fat positive activists and writers and, you know, doing amazing things in the world and also in very large bodies. And so, it's not true, objectively not true, that your weight is going to hold you back from having the life you want. It doesn't have to, right? Your weight doesn't mean anything about who you are as a person. And so you can start to learn to talk back to those thoughts and tell them that you know they're trying to help you, right? You know they're just trying to help you survive in a fat phobic world, but that they're actually not helping you live the life you truly want right now because this fat phobia is hindering you from doing things in your life that you want to do other than exercise, right? It's hindering you from being able to have a flexible relationship with movement and to improve your relationship with food. And we'll talk about that link in a minute between having a compulsive relationship with exercise and having a problematic relationship with food. So that is one piece is like talking back to those thoughts. And then the next thing I would say is to extend on something that Jesse Haggerty and I talked about in episode 140. Jesse said that a good question to ask yourself whenever you're getting ready to engage in movement is, why am I doing this right now? And then really be honest with yourself about the answer. So Georgia, it sounds like you're already aware that weight manipulation is a big motivation for you to move your body and you'd like to let go of that. So the thing I always recommend and that I did myself back in the day to heal my relationship with movement, as I think I shared on last week's episode of the podcast is that if you recognize that your primary or secondary motivation for movement is coming from a diety place, you don't do it. You don't let yourself do it. And over time, that really helps train your brain to decouple movement from diet culture compulsion and to sever that sort of reflexive response of, oh, I have this thought about how I have to move my body in order to shrink it or maintain it or whatever. And then I automatically do the movement. It's like, nope, actually, there's a choice here. You don't have to just do what that thought is telling you automatically. And that's actually really good advice that brings me to my third point because research actually shows that people who engage in movement for weight loss reasons actually have worse relationships with food as well. There's a paper that just came out recently called Weight-Focused Physical Activity is Associated with Poorer Eating Motivation Quality and Lower Intuitive Eating in Women. And we'll link to that in the show notes, although trigger warning, of course, for that in all scientific studies because they talk about numbers and BMI and stuff like that. But that study found that women who moved their bodies in an effort to lose or control their weight reported lower overall intuitive eating scores. And in particular, they were less likely to allow themselves unconditional permission to eat compared to women who moved their bodies for non-weight-related reasons. So if you're looking to heal your relationship with food, letting go of the weight-related motivations to move your body is also likely going to be helpful. 
This study was measuring associations or correlations and not causation. So we don't actually know if the weight-related motivation to exercise is what was causing the disordered relationship with food, or more likely the underlying diet culture belief system was leading people to both exercise for weight-related reasons and not to be intuitive eaters. But the fact remains that if you want to have a peaceful relationship with food and your body, you got to let go of exercising for weight-related reasons, right, for weight control, and also learn to make peace with food and have unconditional permission to eat. So any way you slice it, healing your relationship with food and your body is going to require letting go of those weight-related motivations to move. And so these practices that I'm talking about, about trying to distance yourself from those motivations and really get underneath what your thoughts are telling you about reasons to move your body is going to be helpful for healing your relationship with food and your body overall. So I hope that was helpful. And if you want to submit your own question for a chance to have it answered on an upcoming episode, you can go to christyharrison.com slash questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions. And then if you want to ask me any question you want and have me answer it much more quickly, you can join my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. The course has a wealth of audio and written content teaching you the principles of intuitive eating and lots of journaling practices to help you put them into practice. Plus, it also has an exclusive monthly Q&A podcast where you get to ask me your own questions and listen to hundreds of answers I've given to other participants already, too, so that you can work through your own individual issues with intuitive eating and learn about all kinds of different sticking points in intuitive eating that might come up and really put it into practice in your own life. So right now, the course is open for enrollment anytime, but I'm actually working on an update to it that's going to be released in the spring, and I'm going to be changing some things around in the course and likely making it so that it opens and closes at different times during the year in order to just help me manage my life a bit as things get more hectic and busy for me with my book coming out in late 2019. So right now is the best time to join the course because when you do, you'll get access to all of the current material and be able to ask me your questions and listen to the huge library of monthly Q&As we've already done, and you'll get all the new material that I put in this new release that's coming out in the spring for free as soon as it's released and at a lower price than it's going to be when it comes out later. And a participant named Molly said this about the course. She said, I'm so grateful for this course, this community, and the monthly Q&As. Thank you so, so much, Christy, for answering my questions in this month's installment. It's honestly so special to hear a personal answer to my question, and I met with great ease and reassurance that where I am right now is okay. So thankful. So if you're ready to become an intuitive eater and break free from diet culture once and for all, you can learn more and sign up for the course at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. This episode of Food Psych is brought to you by Poshmark, a great resource for anyone who's recovering from diet culture. On Poshmark, you can shop from millions of closets across America, which is an affordable way to get comfortable clothes that fit the body you have now without breaking the bank. And Poshmark helps you sell the stuff you don't wear anymore so that you can trade in those triggering clothes in your closet for some cash in your pocket. They have a really wide range of brands and clothes that span all across the size and gender spectrum, including a great selection of plus sizes. You won't believe the deals you'll find, and shipping is super fast and easy for both the seller and the buyer, and it's all handled directly through the free Poshmark app. When you see something you want, just make the seller an offer so that you can get items at a price that works for you. And when you're ready to get those old clothes out of your closet, listing on Poshmark is incredibly simple. Just upload pictures of your stuff to the app, set a price, and then ship it to the lucky buyer. 
fire. Today, you can get $5 off your first purchase when you enter the invite code FOODPSYCH when you sign up. Just download the free Poshmark app, sign up, and enter the code FOODPSYCH, that's F-O-O-D-P-S-Y-C-H, for $5 off your first purchase. So now let's go to my interview with Catherine Zavodny. And just a quick heads up that I had some technical difficulties when we were recording this one. So the sound on my end isn't as good as it normally is. It wasn't coming in through this lovely mic that I'm speaking to you on now. It was coming through a different microphone, but it's still a great conversation and I know you're going to love it. So please excuse the technical issues on my end and enjoy this conversation, which I will bring to you right now. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up. So I grew up in a, in a home where food was just, it wasn't a particularly charged topic. I really had a pretty carefree childhood in general, and I don't have strong memories about uh, specific food experiences. We just kind of ate what we ate, and it wasn't a, a big thing. I think things got a little more, a little more charged for me when I, I started to grow tall and started to kind of develop a little bit earlier than pretty much everyone else. So I started, I, I think I developed an identity as kind of the, the bigger girl pretty early on. And somehow, mercifully, I, I didn't ever really put together this implication of, of food on, on a person's size. Like it just never really occurred to me that anyone would put those things together. I don't know how that happened. I'm thankful that it did, but, but I just started to feel pretty self-conscious about just being bigger than my friends and yeah, just my, my peers in general. So, I mean, that was, it was much more about that. And it wasn't until later that I started to kind of start to question the role that food plays in a person's body and, and health and, and function and, and size. Yeah. And that's interesting that like you started to feel ashamed of your body. It sounds like because you were bigger than the other kids. Do you know where that came from? Like, can you think of any messages you got specifically that made you feel that way? Nothing specific. I think just kind of the world we live in, that's just not, size is not really valued. It's just kind of a uh, an unwritten rule that smaller is better. And so, you know, for me, it started out with height. Like I was a full head taller than everyone, all the girls, all the boys. I was just this kind of tower, you know, over everyone. And then I started to actually um, develop some curves and, and all that stuff. And it just felt really conspicuous. I just felt really conspicuous among my peers that I was this kind of giant person. <laughs> And I, I don't know, somehow I just kind of understood that to be something to feel embarrassed about. But yeah, I can't really trace it back to anything specific. I think that's like the insidious nature of diet culture because it comes in so early and it's, I mean, I've been talking to friends of mine who are parents and I think someone on the podcast shared that a couple of like kids TV shows they were watching had body negative stuff in them, fat phobic stereotypes and stuff. And I just see it everywhere, even on kids TV shows and kids media of all kinds, like this focus on the body and the size of the body and that being larger is worse. And it starts so young that it doesn't even have to necessarily be a specific thing to like put that idea in a person's head when they're really young and then start them on this path of body loathing. Absolutely. I mean, it's by the time you're even conscious of it, it just seems to be a matter of course. Like it's just a, a, a fact of life that, that smaller is better, bigger is bad. 
yeah, I mean, it, it's so ubiquitous. And, and but by the time we even know what's going on, and you have consciousness of, of those beliefs, like it's just already so ingrained. Yeah, it's so hard at that point, too, to get rid of them. Because you know, I feel like when we become, we don't really become conscious of them until they're a problem. Right. Right. Like, I think it's just the background noise until we're forced to look at the beliefs themselves and say, oh, actually, this belief isn't serving me. This belief is harming me. This belief, you know, why do I even have this belief in the first place? Let me question it. So yeah, there are all these years that people spend steeped in these beliefs and not even questioning them that it just gets so deeply ingrained, which is why it's so hard, I think, in the long run for people to, or why it just takes such a long time and so much practice and support for people to recover from diet culture when they finally try to. Absolutely. So how did it go from there then when you said, how old were you about when you started having these sort of body comparisons with people? I remember being really tall starting in like fourth grade, fourth and fifth grade. By that time, I was I was definitely a good head taller than everybody else. And so I remember Although even even back before that, I remember as young as second grade, sitting in my desk at school with my my feet like balancing my toes on the floor to lift my legs up so that when I looked down, I didn't have to look down at my legs like spread out on the chair. <laughs> so yeah, that's a specific memory I have back to back to as young as second grade being aware of of wanting my body to look different than it did. Wow. And that's, yeah, like seven years old. Yeah. How did it unfold then when you had this feeling that you were too big or so much taller than other people? And you said you didn't really do anything about that food wise, but. Yeah, no. So I, on through kind of junior high, high school and even college, really, I just kind of assumed that this is just kind of the way it is. Like, this is just the body that I have, which in some ways is a good thing. Like, it wasn't something that I was convinced I needed to change. But at the same time, it was definitely something I didn't feel happy and and content about. And so what kind of brought that to a head was at the end of college, I started to develop some health problems and ultimately was diagnosed with a chronic illness right after I graduated from college, so around like age 22. And I started some medications that actually caused a lot of weight gain. And so I was sick and I felt terrible. And these medications had terrible side effects, including I gained a lot of weight and I was just really unhappy with, you know, I was supposed to be a new college graduate and doing all the wonderful things that we assume new college graduates should be doing. Um, but I was, you know, living at home and I didn't have a job and I was sick and it was just kind of a whole mess. And so I mentioned something to my doctor who was managing all of my medications about being bothered by my weight. And she immediately recommended this very famous, very powerful weight loss program that I, you know, it just, it was honestly the way that I remember it was that like, it was the first time it really ever occurred to me that people like change the way they eat in order to change their bodies. And so I was like, Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, I'll try that. And I did. And I lost a lot of that weight that I was carrying. I'm not sure. Look, in retrospect, I'm not sure there were so many different medications and then the illness itself tends to cause weight loss. 
So there's a lot of fluctuation in there and it's hard for me to kind of pinpoint what was medicine, what was the actual illness itself and what was this kind of manipulating my diet that I was doing. But of course the diet gets the credit, right? (laughs) Absolutely. Yes. At that time I, I fully credited the diet. And, you know, I was in my early twenties and, you know, it was, it it was a pretty drastic change to my eating. So it it would follow that potentially because the weight gain was at least partially due to this medicine that I was taking. And then I'd stopped taking the, you know, it was, there was something, something there. I mean, it was rather rapid and I was, I felt great. Like I was, you know, really happy that that had happened. But then at the same time, you know, I'm still struggling with this illness. And so I started to conflate this whole experience of like your weight and your size and your appearance is really contingent on your choices and your behaviors with this whole narrative that we see in healthcare and particularly kind of alternative healthcare that you have the power and you have kind of this responsibility to do the right things to make yourself well if you're not well. And so I would say that, I mean, I've kind of evolved, not kind of, I've totally evolved (laughs) over to this non-diet way of practicing. I'm, I'm a dietitian um, specializing in eating disorders and health at every size. And I fully embrace that whole paradigm now. But I think my kind of gateway into that way of thinking was this whole starting to feel really uncomfortable with this message that if you're sick, it's your fault. And you haven't discovered this you know, whatever panacea it is that, you know, this kind of elusive thing that some people out there know about that you just have to kind of keep looking until you figure out what it is so that you're making the right choices so that you are well or thin or you weigh the right amount or whatever it is. And I really just started to see kind of the parallels between those messages and and started to notice, first, first notice just how wrong it it sounded to me without really being able to give language to that but then just having that perspective develop over time and and start to to have more of a theoretical kind of understanding of why i had such a problem with that whole narrative that's really interesting and i think that that idea of like personal responsibility is so insidious and it's so at the core of really like healthism and the way that we perceive health in diet culture, whether that's the traditional weight loss paradigm or whether that's alternative health and alternative medicine and what I term the wellness diet, you know, this new modern guise of diet culture that's pretending to be all about wellness, but really is just as oppressive as the traditional model of weight loss. And side note, always involves weight loss or thinness too. You know, it's like, it's not like thinness went away as a mandate. It just got subsumed under, well, if you do these correct things with food or you cut out the right foods, then you'll be well and you'll also be thin. Right. Absolutely. It's so insidious. And it's, I mean, this episode's going to be airing early in the year, like in early 2019, in January. So we're going to have probably a lot of these messages swirling around about like health and wellness and personal responsibility for your wellness. And I think just noticing the personal responsibility message in all of these diet culture beliefs is really important because there's actually evidence I've been researching a lot recently on 
the idea of personal responsibility and what that does to people in regard to health. And actually, it has been shown that health messages that frame people's health as a matter of personal responsibility and particularly their weight as a matter of personal responsibility actually are stigmatizing. Like people feel more stigma when they take in messages like that than if they were given messages like, you know, your health is not entirely within your control. Right. But we just eat it up. Yep. I mean, we as a culture, we just love that. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about, I won't name the title, but there's a particular book right now that's out that has uh, that very message, that whole, you know, if you're not satisfied with your life or your body or your health or whatever it is, just get off your butt and do something about it. And it's a bestseller right now. And it's, it's just a lot of us in, in our kind of niche of the healthcare field are really concerned about a lot of these messages. But I mean, we so want to believe, I guess when you believe it's your fault, then you really believe that you can actually do something about it and you can have control. And that's obviously a really seductive message, but it becomes really harmful when you find that you don't have quite as much control as, you know, inevitably find out that it's, it doesn't actually quite work that way. And then you just continue to believe yourself to be a failure. And then it just kind of creates this vicious cycle. Yeah. I mean, I think it's so insidious because there's the thing of like making people feel like a failure or that it's their fault. And so then they'll buy things to try to correct that. You know, it's like, I think if you feel like you have some agency and some responsibility for changing things and that there's a problem that you've created, then it's your responsibility to fix it. And you have to like buy the thing that's going to fix it. And so it's rhetoric that diet culture and the diet industry uses and channels so much because it does work to get people to like buy stuff and do things to try to change what they perceive as their health problems or failings. Right. But then there's also the piece of like, we live in a world and especially in diet culture where none of the stuff that they promise is within our control actually is like our body size really isn't within our control the way that we've been told it is other than for a very tiny percentage of the population. But those folks usually are controlling their body size through very disordered means that end up really harming their lives. And I'm sure that anyone listening to this podcast who has lost weight and kept it off for more than five years, which is like the statistical unicorns. It's like a tiny percentage of the population, less than 10%. Those folks wouldn't be here listening if they didn't have issues in their relationship with food as well. Same with like the wellness stuff. I feel like the wellness diet promises to make all your symptoms go away and make all your chronic illnesses be managed, or you can get off your medication. You can cure the chronic illnesses that you have through eating a certain way and maybe moving your body a certain way or taking certain herbs and supplements and stuff like that. But actually your health is not entirely within your control or even as much as in your control as that paradigm promises. And so again, people end up with, you know, that few, the, whatever that small percentage of the population is there. We don't have as much evidence on that in terms of how often these things fail, but my hunch is that it's a lot of the time and maybe up there with weight loss diets too, that the wellness diet doesn't actually work for the vast majority of people. And the very few people for whom it does are doing it through very disordered means and sort of driving themselves to a state of orthorexia. And so it's harming their lives too. I think it's just worth considering that, yes, like we live in a culture that really prizes personal responsibility in every aspect. And there's some extent to which that's a good thing. Obviously, we need to take charge of our lives to some degree, but this myth that we can entirely take charge of our health and 
completely eradicate any symptoms or any diseases that we have or completely change our bodies and shrink them to a point of whatever size we desire to be that we can decide to be that and shrink our bodies to that point. That's just a myth. That's just, that's just false advertising. Right. Yeah. So taking it back to your story and your situation with your health, I'm curious to know, like, to what extent did you go down the rabbit hole of that wellness world and the wellness diet and think that you were able to sort of control your health? And how did that work out for you? I went pretty far, actually. I saw lots of different providers. So my illness is is a chronic inflammatory illness. And we just don't really know very well how to treat that. The medical doctors, they have prednisone to give you. They have, you know, they just, their bag of tricks isn't, isn't very big. So I wanted to try some other things. And it's, you know, it's, again, it's really seductive to think, oh, wait, like, maybe I can just change some things about what I do at home, or, you know, I can eat differently, or I can buy some extensive supplement, and then, you know, everything will be great. Like, it's, that sounds really good, if there's a possibility that it might actually help you. So I saw, gosh, I, I started with an integrative medicine professional who sent me to lots of different practitioners. I saw a chiropractor, but the kind of chiropractor that does like applied kinesiology and, and all of this kind of stuff where she can, you know, wave her hands in the air and figure out which seven foods you need to <laughs> eliminate. I saw a hypnotist, I did acupuncture, all kinds of therapy. I did a, an extensive elimination diet for a really long time. And honestly, none of it really seemed to do much for me. And so I, I think particularly with the hypnotist, I, I remember having this experience of she just couldn't really hypnotize me. And it was this weird tension between like, you have to be willing to let go and try. But then on the other hand, like if I have to try and like, if this is dependent on me really buying in and, and believing in what's happening, like if, if it doesn't work, if I don't believe, then really what we're talking about is a placebo effect, right? Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, I got no problem with the placebo effect. Like if that, if whatever works, you know, I'm a big believer in the mind body connection and placebo effect is great. Like if you feel better, super. But I just, I remember thinking like, if this is dependent on me creating an outcome, then we're not going to get anywhere here. <laughs> so, so anyway, I mean, long story short, like I really just kind of never really found anything that that really made much difference. I mean, particularly the elimination diet, which I mean, if we're, if we're going to diagnose an actual food sensitivity, I did do applied kinesiology. And actually, I was in the middle of my elimination diet when I went to the chiropractor that did the applied kinesiology. And after I had, I had been, you know, six or eight weeks with this very short list of foods that I was eating because on a, in a like actual kind of gold standard elimination diet, like the list of things you can eat is actually shorter than the list of things you cannot eat. And I went in there and I'd been working so hard on this elimination diet to try and identify any particular or potential uh, offenders. And she said to me like, oh, well, when you walk out of here today, you can re reintroduce everything except whatever we identify today because I'm gonna tell you exactly what you're sensitive to. And, you know, that statement right there was enough to, thankfully, you know, I, I knew enough to really 
suspect <laughs> alarm bells went off. Yes, exactly. For anyone who doesn't know, I want to just like define applied kinesiology because oh, it's yeah. definitely one of those things that I think people stumble into practitioners that use it because so many people are seeking out integrative practitioners these days. But unfortunately, applied kinesiology just has no good evidence behind it. It's considered like a quack diagnostic tool. It's not considered good science. It's absolute bunk. It's basically no better than chance at diagnosing anything. But people unfortunately get sucked in by it. And it's, it's great that you had that sort of red flag go up. But I think, yeah. So like, can you explain sort of what they did with applied kinesiology, like what it entails? Sure. So they have this little briefcase full of teeny tiny little vials of just minute little quantities of different foods, apples and beef and soy and spinach and, you know, all kinds of things. And they, so they do what's the, what they call muscle testing. So you lie down on the table and she places one vial of whatever potential offending substance in your hand and you, you raise one hand, one arm off the table, kind of straight up in the air with the instruction to try to not allow her to push your hand down. And the theory is that if you're holding a substance that you are indeed sensitive to, your muscles just suddenly get a lot weaker. And so the practitioner is able to push your arm down much more easily than if you're not holding anything or if you're holding something that it, that you're not sensitive to. And so it's this totally subjective judgment on the part of the practitioner like, oh yeah, it's so much easier to push your arm down than it was a minute ago now that you're holding this vial of a little, you know, tiny essence of soy or something. And she claimed to have identified three or four food substances, I don't even remember what they are based on this muscle testing that she was doing. And I, I mean, I saw one practitioner once who actually claimed that you could act, you could do it with people in your life. Like what? if you write down the name of a person that you're really close to and have a really solid connection with, that that will change kind of your, your strength capacity compared to uh, if you write down the name of a person with whom you have a really toxic relationship, that your muscles will respond the same way. Oh my God, that's <laughs> ridiculous. I mean, oh, and it, there's no, I mean, just the fact that it's so subjective that the practitioner can be like, oh, it feels different now. And of course, bringing all their own prejudices to it too, because they see what vial they're taking out and, you know, what you have in your hand probably. So you're like, right. They're like, oh, soy is bad, you know, bringing all that to the table. So then they're like, oh, you're holding soy and your muscles are a little weaker. So let's yes. put that on the list, right? Yeah. I mean, thankfully, I, at the time I had the sense to just be like, okay, this is wacko. Like, I'm not going <laughs> to I'm not gonna put any stock in this. And again, I mean, at the time I, I was in the middle of an elimination diet that, I mean, it's a hell of a lot of work to actually get, you know, be that meticulous that I can truly say was not like a, a diety kind of thing. Like I really just wanted to identify, like, is there anything that, you know, if I can eliminate nightshade vegetables and feel better then I'm, you know, I'm willing to do that. Right. Cause at the time you weren't disordered about food, right. When you were going into this chronic illness thing. Well, that, I mean, at that point, I would say probably at that point, I had lost a lot of weight 
from either the illness or the, you know, coming off the medication or the diet. That was kind of post when I was like deliberately changing the way that I was eating to be smaller, you know, to make my body smaller. But at that point, I really did just want to try and feel better. So that I do remember that being very much what that was about. And so, you know, at the end of it, like they recommend you reintroduce one food at a time until you kind of and like observe any changes in your symptoms. And I just don't really, I just didn't really identify any changes. Like nothing really changed for me. I was feeling pretty much the same physically in terms of my actual disease symptoms. At the end of the kind of eliminate everything trial, as I did before I started it, and as I did, as I reintroduced everything to the point where I was kind of eating like I was before, like there really wasn't any change for me. And it's kind of discouraging, like you still because I mean, in this context, you still have this response of like, well, did I do it wrong? Like, what? Was there something that that should have been on my list to eliminate that wasn't like, what did I do wrong? Because it's just that the whole narrative is that there's something that you're doing that if you wouldn't do it, you would feel better. Yeah. So of course it encourages self-blame. Right. Right. Like it's, it can't not. And especially, I think it's so toxic and seductive that idea of like, oh, well, you know, maybe I just need to eliminate more foods. Maybe there's something that should have been on the list that wasn't. And so now I need to go even further down this road of elimination. That is, I think, how so many people get really sucked into orthorexia and suddenly are eating almost nothing because they they just feel like they can't allow themselves to eat foods or they need to identify what's going on. And it's interesting, your experience of not feeling like the elimination diet yielded any results. Because I feel like when I've talked to anyone who's had a decent relationship with food, it sounds like you were a little bit definitely caught up in in a sort of diet mindset, but also not specifically doing the elimination diet for dieting purposes and not super disordered about food, like not in a really deep state of disorder and restriction and stuff that I think a lot of people who spend more time in diet culture kind of get to. And when I've seen people like that or people who've never had any experience with dieting at all and are just like, I want to help my stomach feel better, they have not found any relief in my experience, like clinical experience. They've not found any relief from an elimination diet. They've not found anything that actually needed to change or that a symptom was being caused by a particular food. Right. And the people who have a disordered relationship with food and go into an elimination diet I've seen some folks in that camp become convinced that something is helping them. And maybe, in fact, it is like maybe there are some things that, you know, some foods that people are feeling sensitive to in a particular moment because of the disordered eating. Like I talked about in my episode with Marcy Evans, which will have aired, you know, a month or so ago by the time this comes out, where disordered eating itself causes digestive problems. And so then, you know, you can actually become more sensitive to certain foods because of the disordered eating's effect on your digestion, not because of the foods themselves. But then you start doing elimination diet and it's like, oh, see, I am sensitive to this food because I feel better when I cut it out. Or the nocebo effect of believing you're sensitive to the food because of everything you've heard from diet culture and the wellness diet and orthorexic mindset that you've got going on where you're like, oh, gluten is bad, so I should avoid gluten. And 
I feel better when I'm not eating gluten because of all the negative beliefs you have about it. So I think that basically in my view, elimination diets don't really seem helpful for anyone. They're actually very harmful for people with disordered eating, but even for folks with a relatively decent relationship with food, I've never seen them be particularly helpful. And there's like very few cases in which that might be true. Maybe there are some folks listening for whom that's been the case, but I feel like nine times out of 10 from what I've seen, it just is at least like at the very least, it's not conclusive. And at the worst, it's incredibly harmful. Well, and I mean, I think there's also, I mean, it just gets really complicated because there's of this enormous pressure that is put on you to identify something. And so like for somebody like me who really didn't notice any sort of difference at all symptom wise, like I felt ashamed at the end of it that like I hadn't done it right or it hadn't worked. And it's like if you come up with that result, that outcome, like the, the nothing happened, now what? There's this judgment out there that like, I mean, because the way that kind of that industry, that kind of alternative medicine or, or wellness industry frames you then is, oh, you just didn't want to give up your foods. Like you just didn't want to change your lifestyle. You didn't want to do the work. You'd rather just take a pill kind of thing. Like there's this extreme shame narrative about people who don't really jump on board with that. Like, oh, you could be better if you'd want, if you would be, if you're just willing to change your lifestyle. People just don't want to change your lifestyles. Right. You just want to pop a pill. That's, oh. Well, and then for somebody like me, like I ended up having some pretty major life altering surgery. I've had multiple major operations. And so, <laughs> To imply, like, for me, like, that was a really painful thing for me to hear, even as a person who, you know, at, at this point now, like, I don't believe that to be true about myself. Like, I, I didn't go through all that and, and continue to go through all that because I'm just too lazy to change my lifestyle. Like, I, I know that about myself and I am secure in that now. But at the time, like, it's really hard, like when you're walking through that, it's hard to not like wonder if that's just a, maybe just a tiny bit true. And it's, I mean, I see so many parallels with that and the way that we talk about larger bodies and the way that we talk about weight control. Oh, well, you know, there must be something just even subconscious that you're doing that is not allowing you to lose the weight that you want to lose. Like, it's like the people out there who just kind of know better know that there must be something like there must be something that you're just not willing to do some measure that you're not just not willing to take like you're just not willing to make the sacrifice and that's why you fill in the blank and i feel like the vast majority of people who are making that claim who are saying well you're just too lazy to change your lifestyle or there's just something that you aren't doing and if you could figure it out then everything would change the people making those claims the vast majority of the time, I feel like don't actually have the lived experience of someone going through it. Absolutely. Especially with weight. It's like these thin people who've always had thin privilege, like usually thin male white doctors, you know, saying <laughs> like, oh, well, if this person with quote unquote obesity would just control herself, you know, it's like, yes, oh, come on. Like how on earth can they claim to know the experience of someone who's gone through it? It's the, uh, the born on third base, but think they hit a triple <laughs> totally. phenomenon. Absolutely. Yeah. But I mean, you can see where the, there's that temptation to kind of 
arrive at some outcome, even if it's not really authentically what you experienced, like there's this, I mean, it's almost like as, as if, you know, someone who was trying to lose weight could, could claim like, oh yes, it worked that, you know, it doesn't quite work that way when we're talking about body size, but the end of, at the end of an elimination diet, there's enormous temptation to say, yes, oh my gosh, when I reintroduced oats or whatever, you know, just something like I really, I definitely could tell a difference in blah, 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 blah. So that's my answer. Yay. I, you know, I, I succeeded. I found something. And then at least you can, you can feel or claim that you've had some sort of success because you want to believe that. I mean, you want to believe that for yourself. You want to be able to report that to the people who know what you've been doing. And they want to believe that too. I'm sure they're putting a lot of unconscious pressure, just the fact that they have a whole business staked on this, this protocol or this procedure. It's like, they want you to find something too. So you're feeling that pressure from them. You're feeling that pressure from yourself to like justify the money that you've spent, the time that you spent going through this thing. That's actually really hard, you know, to say like it, it wasn't a total waste of time and money. Right. Because the alternative is I get lumped in with that group of people who are just too lazy to make a lifestyle change because I didn't, it's not because I just happen to not have any major food sensitivities it's because the narrative becomes, if I don't identify something, if there's actually not a lifestyle change that I could make, then I'm automatically just in that group of people who are just so lazy and, and don't would rather just pop a pill or in my case would rather have, you know, multiple really super invasive painful surgeries. <laughs> As though that's easy. Yeah. Right, right. Totally. I mean, I remember, I mean, truly, the, the, before I had my first operation, I was in the hospital trying to get things under control with medical therapies and it just wasn't working. And I was, you know, I was calling people, I was researching like what Hail Mary, crazy, obscure alternative therapy could I try to, to save myself from this? I mean, it really, like, it's kind of heartbreaking to, to think about my own experience and, and what so many people go through just desperately searching for some answer when there's this rhetoric that like, oh, it's out there. Yeah. You just have to find it and do it. Like, it's just not acceptable to, for everybody to just settle on, you know, sometimes people are just sick. Yeah, I know there's always, and I think the internet has just made it even more seductive and more possible to go down these rabbit holes because there's endless message boards, there's endless blog posts of someone claiming they healed any obscure disease you can think of under the sun with any obscure protocol that you can think of, you know? And, and so like, it is, I, I get it too. Like, it's so tempting. And I've been, I've had chronic illnesses as well that I've at various times felt like I stumbled into some, you know, really quacky types of things to try to heal them because I was, desperate, you know, and I didn't, I wasn't sure what was actually going on. I didn't, you know, for me, it was like the disordered eating was actually causing the problems for the most part, but I wasn't seeing that or nobody was pointing that out to me and I wasn't acknowledging it to myself. And so it was all too tempting and all too easy to go, well, what, what about cutting out this food? What about cutting out that food? What about, can I heal my gut through these alternative therapies rather than looking at what is actually going on here or in like your case, just saying, well, 
this is a chronic illness that's sort of poorly understood and there isn't a lot we can do. And like having to sort of sit with that, it's because nobody wants to suffer. Nobody wants to have to give up and say, well, I guess I'm resigned to pain. Right. So how did it, how did it go for you from there then? Like, did you, when you tried all these alternative therapies that didn't work, what was your next step? I mean, it's interesting. I, my disease state at that point when I was kind of trying all that stuff was not terrible. Like it, it was not certainly not as bad as it was before I ended up just ultimately having surgery. So, I mean, it was kind of livable, you know, I just kind of moved forward and, you know, I, this is kind of my normal and I, I can live with that and that's okay. And I think I just sort of left it behind, not in any sort of definitive, like I'm done with this kind of way. (laughs) But I think I just kind of exhausted all those resources and just ended up kind of like shrugging my shoulders and being like, well, okay, I guess, (laughs) I guess this is, is where we are. And then as I started, I mean, it was around that time that I was starting graduate school and starting to study nutrition to be a dietitian. I was just going to ask, like, how did that all sort of (laughs) unfold and play into this? I mean, it first kind of started, ironically, with that first experience of like actually dieting for weight loss. And I thought I had this great epiphany that like, oh, if you change the way you eat, it might have an impact on your body. Like I had made this, you know, great discovery. And that was kind of the first interest that I I had in actually studying nutrition. But I mean, all this stuff, I mean, happened over the better part of a decade before I even ended up in school. And so by the time I was studying, I had had all of these experiences and I just kind of got really sick of just the way that we talk about health and how, I mean, so like my husband, his his dad's side of the family, they all get really old. His grandmother is 102 years old. Um, his dad is in his late 70s and he still skis every weekend in the wintertime. He plays tennis all the time. His grandmother like was teaching French at the library at age 100. You know, they just have like really good, good genes for like longevity. But there's this narrative like around, you know, oh, well, she took a walk and that's, you know, that's clearly like if people would just take a walk, they would live to be 100. And, you know, I, I come from a family where we, you know, there's some chronic illness and, and my dad's very ill. And like, we just are not as well in general in terms of like medical health. And so it just really bugged me how people talk about like, oh, well, I mean, if people would just get their acts together and take a walk, you know, like, like, it's just that same sort of born on third base and think they had a triple, like they think they've done something really right, that's really simple and straightforward. And if everybody would just do it, we would all be healthy and look like supermodels and live to be 105 or whatever. Meanwhile, there's millions of people out there doing those things and still having chronic health conditions. Totally. Yes. And so it just this whole like, super simplistic way of of looking at it that that dismisses like in huge populations of people for whom things are not quite that simple. It it just I don't know, by that point, I was really starting to kind of get my back up about that sort of thing. But I hadn't quite arrived there with the whole kind of body weight and fat phobia and diet culture and and all of that. But that was kind of my gateway into thinking about that. And so as 
as I proceeded through graduate school, like I started to have those same reactions to the way the professionals and, and educators around me would talk about body weight. And I mean, I was in school for public health nutrition, which all by itself is like a whole thing. Like, how are we going to solve the problem of all the fat people is basically what. <laughs> That's what I did too. We're trying to solve, you know, feed hungry populations, like public health nutrition. Absolutely. Like, how are we going to eliminate hunger like that? I'm on board for but overwhelmingly, it was about like interventions for preschools, how to get, you know, two-year-olds to start drinking skim milk instead of whole milk and, you know, just all this stuff. Like, I was just like, really? Do you people think you're doing something good here? Like, you're not even accomplishing what you think you're trying to accomplish. And I mean, beyond that, like, really, like, how many resources are we are we devoting to these kinds of interventions? Like, it just started to really, like, I just started to have this really strong, similar response to the way that people talk about that, which sounds a whole lot like the way they talk about this, this health stuff and, and healing yourself and, and doing the right things and making the right choices um, and changing lifestyle and, and having those positive outcomes that are available to everyone if you just do the right things. That is so interesting. That's another aspect of the connection between wellness culture and diet culture or why wellness culture really is a form of diet culture that I think people don't always look at because it's so fundamental. It's a basic level of both of those things, but you're totally right that it's held up as this is your personal responsibility. If you would just do these simple things, then you could completely change your weight or your health. And if you're not doing them, then you're bad. And like all of this rhetoric is so similar across the two camps. The arrogance of it just blows my mind. I know. And yeah, like you said, it's so many people who were born on third and think they had a triple with this stuff that are telling other people what to do. Yes. So how did that play out for you then as you were starting your career as a dietitian and going through the end of your schooling? I mean, we had the one, literally one single lecture on eating disorders and it was a guest lecturer because, you know, our actual professors really aren't interested <laughs> in talking about that. But uh, for my final kind of field placement, I ended up on a college campus, a, another local college campus at an elite university working in student health. And so you kind of have to get pretty comfortable talking about eating disorders when you're working in that sort of setting. And I met my mentor at the time, and she's actually a really close colleague with me now, um, Anna Lutz. She was already working as a dietitian, and so I was kind of working for her in that role and in that setting. And so we were doing both kind of clinical eating disorder treatment um, with students, but also kind of environmental prevention sort of campaigns for healthy eating, you know, quote, healthy eating, like more about like how to feed yourself well and eat adequately and also uh, just the whole body image. There was a peer support group for disordered eating and body image that we kind of uh, led together. And so I ended up doing my final paper um, for my master's on this population problem of eating disorders on that campus. As a, we didn't do the a thesis, we did a community assessment. And so I assessed the community for the problem of eating disorders. And then after I graduated, my first job out of school was working with a private practice as a contractor 
to see all their eating disorders because it was kind of one of these situations where there was this private practice and they didn't really have anybody that wanted to see eating disorders, but they wanted to be able to, to market to that population. So they had to have somebody who was willing to do it, not because they are really oriented that way. And so I was just happy somebody was willing to give me experience because at that point I would, had kind of started to figure out that like, that was really the only kind of nutrition I was interested in doing, just helping people be kind of more normal and less anxious and, and disturbed around food. So I took the job and, you know, like I said, it was, uh, you know, it, it's eating disorders is kind of one of those things where it's hard to get a job without experience and it's hard to get experience without a job. So I, I went and I did the work, um, but it got really uncomfortable pretty quickly because everybody else in the practice was doing, you know, very mainstream, very typical conventional dietetic work. And so I'm, I'm treating eating disorders in, a, in an office that has a bookshelf in it with like the zone diet on it. And there's like Splenda coupons on the wall that you can like rip off and take one, you know, it's like, you're treating eating disorders in an environment that creates eating disorders, basically. Yes, precisely. So that was that got a little uncomfortable. But then I ended up actually uh, switching over to a practice with Anna and some other dietitians who are doing fabulous non-diet work. And I got some great supervision there and, and mentorship there. And so that's kind of where it first really, where I really saw, like, there's a way to do this, like a better way to do this. And we can actually use the education that we have to help people in a way that's, that's meaningful and that doesn't just create more harm. That's huge. And it's, I think that's something that a lot of dietitians never experience or don't experience until late in their career, that dietetics doesn't have to be this diet culture, traditional way, that it can be something completely different. Right. That was a huge relief to me because I started, I was starting to think I just couldn't do the work. Yeah, I feel you. I feel like if I hadn't discovered intuitive eating and health at every size, I eventually would have burned out because it was just not, it was cognitively dissonant. It wasn't working. Yes. Right. I was like, I know that I know how disordered this stuff actually is, even if I didn't have a name for it or, you know, it just was, it just was not sitting right. Right. Well, that's really cool that you were able to discover that and that it sounds like your own journey with health really informed, like gave you kind of a, a good bullshit meter, honestly, for like <laughs> yeah. how, you know, for how this stuff shows up in diet culture and weight as well. Well, that and I just, I developed a really high sensitivity for any sort of, of perspective, like as a professional, like I never wanted to have this attitude or this posture of like, oh, I know what you need. I know what you need to do. You just need to listen to me. And if you don't, if you can't figure out your own problems and if you, or if you can't uh, solve your problems doing what I said, then you're clearly just doing it wrong. Like this whole, like I'm up here, I'm the expert and I, I know all, and I can, I can fix you if you'll just allow me to fix you. Like it just made me really sensitive to any sort of message like that. And so in my, in my practice, like I really feel very strongly about taking the opposite approach of your body has the wisdom that is going to inform how we proceed here. And I will partner with you to understand what your body is trying to tell us. And I will never presume to know more what you need than your, than your body does. And so what we can do is 
is try to learn to understand the language that your body speaks and allow you to decide what your priorities and what your values are and and go from there. That's kind of, I think, the biggest takeaway from from my experience that I had is I never wanted to put put myself in this role of the expert on someone's experience. Yeah, I think that's so interesting and something that I hear from like detractors of health at every size and intuitive eating or just people that are sort of new to it and don't know is that they fear that it's like we're just telling people what to do in the opposite way. You know, we're just telling people what to do and what to do is break away from diet culture and do the opposite of what the gurus and experts and people that are telling you what to do on the diet culture side are saying. And I think that this idea of like listening to the wisdom of the body is really key in explaining how health at every size and intuitive eating are different from the dominant paradigm, because it is like, even if we're saying, don't follow this diet plan, this is not helpful for you. It's probably not going to be in that sort of declarative of a way, or we're not telling them what to do like that and wagging our finger, but we're saying, let's see what's going on with your body. And let's see how this diet is affecting your body. And let's see how this diet is affecting your mental health and your well-being and like your overall personhood and figure out whether this is actually helpful or harmful. And let's look at some signs and maybe I can help you see some signs that this is actually harming you and taking away from your life. Right. Well, I mean, at the same time, though, I think we also have to be prepared to allow a person his or her own autonomy. And if you decide that what you need to be doing right now is dieting and pursuing weight loss, like it's not for me to say that you can't do that or shouldn't do that. You know, I certainly have my opinions about it. And I certainly have seen and experienced ways that those things do hurt people. But I mean, everybody has their own process and and they need to walk through that in an authentic way. And if they're not ready to pursue that line with me, then they're not ready to pursue that line with me. And they can, you know, go home and, and do their thing and maybe do what they're doing in potentially even kind of self-destructive ways for however long they need to do that until they're ready to make a shift and make a change. And then, you know, I'm certainly willing to have those conversations. But I mean, part of this whole radical willingness to respect you and respect the person that I, that is sitting across from me and, and respect that person's process is respecting if they're not in that place where they're ready to to hear that from me and, and ready to to pursue that that kind of different paradigm with me. And that's really hard. Like that can be really painful to see somebody who just really doesn't want what I have to offer. But they're I mean that's they get to decide. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great point for any clinicians listening, but also a point for any humans listening who have other people in their life that are pushing back against them being on this anti-diet path and telling them that they should get involved in diet culture or doing diets themselves. Because I get a lot of, I think the most common question that I get from listeners and online course participants is like, how do I talk to these people in my life who are still dieting and driving me up a wall by talking about it, you know? And I think it's, it's a very important thing to keep in mind there too, that even if you want to like scream it from the rooftops, that diets don't work and that people are harming themselves if they diet and talk your mom out of doing whole 30 or your sister out of doing a <laughs> cleanse or whatever it is. 
they have their own path. They have their own journey. They're autonomous human beings. And sometimes you can't influence them. Sometimes all you can do is like set a boundary and say like, let's not talk about this because it's harmful to me, but like you do you instead of trying to convince them. Cause I think, yeah, a lot of people get into sort of battles that are ultimately harmful to them too. And same with clinicians. I mean, I think early in my clinical days, I would definitely work so hard to convince someone who just was not ready. And that can happen a lot. I think for people, especially with eating disorders who are just like referred to you by their treatment center and they're, you know, sort of not coming hundred percent voluntarily. Like they're just doing it because it's part of their treatment plan or whatever. So I think it's important to just take care of yourself in those contexts and say, right. And I know for me as a clinician too, like I had to become aware of that pattern that I was trying to like pull someone along where they didn't want to go and just be like, okay, I have to, I have to drop it. I have to like let go and see if this person's going to come meet me halfway or if they're not, then maybe this isn't the right fit. And we can talk about that and we can like talk about what they ultimately want to do as an autonomous person. But, but yeah, it's a very tough thing to do, especially when you're passionate about something. Right. Right. I mean, and I think when we get into the, when we get caught up in this kind of push pull tug of war situation where we're just kind of arguing whether that's happening like in in our professional circles or with people in our personal lives like we can inadvertently end up kind of pushing people further into their own paradigm when we're working so hard to try and convince someone or pull someone along you know over to our side of things like we end up kind of you know accomplishing the opposite so I think it's a really important distinction between protecting yourself and, and, and keeping those boundaries. Like you said, like, fine, whatever, if you want to do your whole 30, like knock yourself out, I don't want to hear about it. So it's more about like protecting my own needs and my own space and my own, you know, need to be kind of free of that talk, but also honoring and respecting another person's autonomy and, and deciding. I mean, it's, it's part of the conversation like we this has come up like in our in our dietetic community recently about like you do what you need to do but please don't go telling everybody about it like if you need to you know eliminate this that and that other food and it changed your life and save your life and you know it's not for me to say that that's not a valid experience but please don't go and preach that to your following of 20,000 people because there are vulnerable people out there who are going to think like, oh, this could save me too. When that's really a completely inappropriate thing to communicate because, you know, your body is your body, but it's not going to be, you know, somebody else's experience and you're far more likely to cause harm than you are to create this wonderful transformative experience that you, you know, describe yourself having, having had. So... Yeah, that's a really, that's a really important point too. It's like protecting people from like, if you have social influence in whatever way that is protecting people from getting so caught up in doing what you do and being like you and cutting out the foods you cut out because it is still a part of diet culture and people are going to want to get on board and get the results that they think you have or they see you having. So being mindful of that influence and it is true. There are those people out there who have a not terrible experience with dieting or diet culture, or even the experience that is held up as like the gold standard, you know, that like you lose weight and keep it off or you 
heal your health issues. And like, there are those, those unicorns, you know, that that does happen for. Right. But what is the message that they're sending? If that's, if that's what they're telling everybody in their life to do, it's actually creating a lot more disorder than it, than it is helping. Right. Oh, well, this is also fascinating. I'm one last question I'm curious about is with your health condition now, knowing all that you know about health at every size and disordered eating and intuitive eating, how are you managing now? And how is that different from back in the day when you're getting kind of caught up in the whole alternative health field? I think that the biggest thing that I, I don't necessarily struggle with now, but my, my biggest focus at at this point is just really being authentic in my own experience. And if I'm not feeling well, or, you know, if I am not for whatever reason, not content with kind of the way my body is functioning or my life is, is functioning, just really asking myself, like, what do you need and being careful not to look outside for those answers, but really just trying to engage with my own body and my own self and and asking, what do you need? And maybe that's more sleep, or maybe that's to keep more strict limits on my screen time and my social media time, or maybe that's trying to, you know, taking measures to distance myself from a person who is causing me a lot of grief in my life or, you know, whatever it is. That's still, and I think, you know, that's not necessarily specific to someone who's got a chronic illness, but I I just, it's become really critical for me to work to recognize the things in my life that do impact me in a negative way and impact, you know, my body and my health. Because I think all those things I just mentioned are, are examples of things for me that can really impact the way that I feel physically as well as you know emotionally and mentally and just really trusting myself that I can identify those things for myself and that it, it can be up to me to to respond and, and manage those things in a way that feels meaningful to me. I love that and I love that it's also much more truly holistic, not just fake holistic, which is actually just about food and body size, but like true holistic in terms of looking at your whole life and what's going on in various areas of your life and how that's affecting you mentally, physically, emotionally. Right. And, you know, I think that that can involve food. Like there, there can, you know, be a point at which you say like, I don't really feel like I've been feeding myself in a way that feels satisfying and that feels supportive of my feeling the way that I want to feel, whatever that means, whether it means like I haven't been eating breakfast regularly or I, you know, whatever, whatever that is for me. But I mean, I don't even like to, I mean, a key component for that for me is having that just be my experience and not feeling the need to go and kind of trumpet this discovery that I've made that I changed this about this thing. And it made me feel so much better because, you know, that has nothing to do with anybody except my own experience. So, and knowing how vulnerable people are and and how people really just want to grasp. I mean, even when it comes to intuitive eating, as long as it's this thing that I'm going to learn how to do out of a book or because somebody told me to, it's not really your own intuitive experience. Like you have to kind of live that inside your own life and inside your own body. And it doesn't require you know, consulting a person or a book or or anything like that. It's really just your own kind of journey 
to discover what those things are for you and, and how to kind of manage them and respond to them. So, and you know, sometimes, sometimes there are food things and sometimes it, it really, you have to go back a few orders in order to identify like, well, you know, if I'm not sleeping as well, then I tend to not have as much energy to like prepare actual deliberate meals for myself. And so that's kind of about the food, but you really kind of have to trace back to what the origin of why you're struggling with whatever that thing is. And, you know, that's another part of it for me is like, I'll I'll identify like, okay, well, I, I really need to be protecting my, my sleep better. And so some of these things will maybe start to fall into place. And, you know, I, I talk about that with clients and it's really not a very glamorous, sexy message. Like I came here, so you would tell me how to eat and you're telling me to go to bed earlier. (laughs) But I mean, I, I think that that's, you know, that's part of the journey for me is just kind of really trying to trace back like, okay, if I don't like how I'm feeling, is there something that I can identify that I know is true for myself? that might be contributing to that. And and then also, I think having some compassion for, you know, sometimes there's not a real obvious answer. And you just have to kind of walk through these seasons where, um, you know, things aren't perfectly ideal. And that's okay. Yeah. And I also love what you're saying about looking within in terms of, because I see it, I see a lot of people who are really caught up in disordered eating and diet culture and the diet mentality grasping onto intuitive eating as, you know, turning into a, into another diet. And then also with people with severe eating disorders or longstanding eating disorders, turning intuitive eating into inadvertently sometimes another excuse to restrict or having the eating disorder get a hold of it as like, this is the way that we're going to, you know, magically be thin or magically be in perfect health or whatever it is. And I think that is all, all those beliefs that people put on intuitive eating, that it's like the hunger and fullness diet, or it's the figure out what you're sensitive to by paying exquisite attention to how your body feels and then cutting out those foods diet. All of that is external stuff that is imposed on intuitive eating from diet culture. That's not really coming from your own authentic connection with your body and with your relationship with food. And so if you can put that all aside and actually look at like, yeah, is it, am I not eating breakfast because I can't get up in the morning in time to prepare it? And so then I'm running out the door, like these little things that have nothing to do with diet culture's version of intuitive eating, but that are actually like practical, personal little decisions in your life that can make a difference. That's the true intuitive eating. It's like true intuitive eating is actually a lot more boring than diet culture makes it out to be. Right. (laughs) It's like, yeah, just very, a lot of minutia, but not the minutia that diet culture makes you think. It's not the minutia of where am I on the hunger scale, like a four or a five. It's the minutia right. of like, <laughs> like, yeah, how can I take better care of myself, basically? Right. Oh, well, it's such a great conversation. I'm really glad we had a chance to talk and connect. And can you tell us where people can find you and learn more about your work? Absolutely. My website is www.kznutrition.com. And you can find me on Facebook uh, at Catherine Zavodny, M-P-H-R-D-N. And on Instagram at KatZavRD, K-A-T-Z-A-V-R-D. Awesome. We'll put links to that in the show notes too, so people can find you and connect with you in all those places. Great. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you, Christy. I had a great time.
So that's our show. Thanks again so much to Catherine Zavodny for joining us on this episode. And thanks to you for listening. If you've gotten something out of this podcast, please help us reach more people who need to hear the anti-diet message by sharing this episode on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. Just go to christyharrison.com slash subscribe to see some of the most popular platforms we're on. And be sure to subscribe while you're there if you haven't already. If you're looking for some practical tips to get started on your own anti-diet journey, grab my free audio guide, Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food. Head over to christyharrison.com slash strategies to get it. That's christyharrison.com slash strategies. To get full show notes from this episode, including all the resources we discussed, plus a full transcript, head over to christyharrison.com slash 183. That's christyharrison.com slash 183. And to get the transcript, just scroll down to the bottom of the page and enter your email address. This episode of Food Psych was brought to you by Poshmark. Poshmark is the easiest way to buy and sell clothes and other fashion items. Just download the free Poshmark app to score amazing deals from tons of brands and list your own items and wait for the offers to roll in. Shipping is fast and easy and all is handled directly through the app. Today you can get $5 off your first purchase when you enter the invite code FOODPSYCH, that's F-O-O-D-P-S-Y-C-H, when you sign up. A big thanks to our editor and engineer, Mike Lalonde, and to my Food Psych Programs team, including our community and content associate, Vinci Chue, our administrative assistant, Julianne Watasek, and our transcript assistant, Kiara McClellan, for helping me out with all the moving parts that go into producing this show every week. Our album art was photographed by Abby Moore Photography and designed by Meredith Noble. And the music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL. And the track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license, although heads up, we're getting a new theme song and I'm going to roll it out and share it with you next week. So I'm sad to say goodbye to this song. It's been with us since the beginning, almost six years ago now that I started making this podcast. And I really, it really holds a special place in my heart, but um, we got a new custom song written for us that I'm going to share with you next week. And I'm really excited. So all the more reason to stay psyched as I'm always saying. So thanks again for listening and truly until next time, stay psyched. Stupid or scared.